Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am Joe Laurent, and welcome to Hold the Line, the podcast for force free gun dog training. Hold the Line is committed to helping you train your dog to an advanced level using motivational methods and without the use of fear or pain. Thank you for tuning in and please make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Hold the Line. Hello everyone, welcome back to Hold the Line. So to begin with this week, I am going to do the draw to see who has won this spare copy of my book, which I have so it's a proof. So it does say not for resale across the front, but that just makes it even more rare and unique and desirable. So um, I've got everyone's names, all the people who've asked me a question recently. I have their names in a hat here. Well, it's not really a hat. It's more of a bowl, really. Um, but um, I'm going to forage around in there and I'm going to pluck a name out of the bowl. So while I'm doing that, you can listen to some jingle bells here because it's Christmas. All right, so, okay, I have a name, put the jingle bells away. So, Tessa Lomax, you have won the copy of the proof. Um, So I'll be in touch with you to get your address, and then I can send it to you. I may wait until after the Christmas postal rush is over before I attempt to send it. Um, But congratulations. And now it's time for a little bit of a rant. Hold the line. So I know it's Christmas and everything, but I'm going to indulge myself and have a little bit of a rant anyway. I was in my car the other day driving and I just the question that came into my head was the overarching question was are things ever going to change? That was that was kind of because there were different subjects that I was thinking about here, but that seemed to be the question that connected to both of them. So many of you probably know that the IGR Retriever Championship happened a few weeks ago. Um, And I just, out of interest, looked through the list of all of the dogs running in the championship and put them into Mate Select on the Kennel Club uh, health database where you can look up a dog's health test results. And... Some of them had very high hip scores. Some of them did not have current eye tests and yet had produced progeny relatively recently. Some of them weren't elbow scored. They were only hip scored and not elbow scored. Many of them had no DNA tests or only maybe one DNA test. And the COIs were 
creeping up. So there's the average COI, which stands for coefficient of inbreeding, in Labradors is 6.5%. And kind of, and you can see why this happens, because it's happening because people want to breed the best to the best. And so we kind of end up with this little sort of niche subgroup of Labradors, which are sort of trial-bred Labradors, that themselves end up having, you know, I think they're probably about 8% is probably kind of average COIs for what I've been looking at in terms of um, when you look at dogs with a strong field trial pedigree, that tends to be where they are. There's some exceptions, of course. There's some with much lower COIs and some with much higher COIs. But I just find it a little bit depressing, really. Um, And then I was on Facebook the other day, as I quite often am, and I saw this question that someone asked in another gun dog group. And the question was basically someone saying, what was the average COI for their breed? It wasn't Labradors, it was another breed. And what, and did it matter? Did they, should they try to breed to that or below that? And the advice they got for about three different people was that it didn't matter very much. And there were other things that were much more important, like um, working ability and confirmation and you know the health tests that you can do and COIs were not really that important and I just sort of I was so angry when I read that but I didn't say anything in response because you know Facebook wars take so much energy and I just don't have enough energy to have all those fights on Facebook all the time that I'd have to have if I started them so I'm just not going to start them most of the time so but it's still kind of it made me a little depressed and I just thought, why is this message not really getting across to people? I just don't really understand. Um, As a little kind of experiment, I went through all of the list of the dogs running in the IGL Championship, and I thought, well, let's just put them into Mate Select with Fire, my little Labrador puppy. He's only 15 weeks at the moment, so this is purely academic. But let's just put put her in with these each of these um, male dogs, for the dogs which were male, and let's just see what COIs came out. So I then made a little list here just to run through the list. So I'm going to do this really quickly because it's a lot of numbers. But if you remember that the average for Labradors is 6.5%. So the COIs that came up from Fire and um, these dogs that are running were as follows. So Fire does have um, quite a strong field trial pedigree herself. So in looking at these male dogs listed there, I'm also looking at strong field trial pedigrees. So that's what's coming out. So in order for this to change and for COIs to get lower, people have to make sometimes courageous breeding decisions and choose a dog with a lower COI. And they have to maybe do that over the dog, which they think is the most beautiful dog in the world, or the dog which they think is the most incredible, amazing working ability, which they really just want to breed their bitch to, although the COI is 12% or something. Um, So I just I don't really know how to get the message across, but the fact is that breeds are going to go extinct. There are going to be more and more health issues occurring in the breeds because the higher the COIs get, the greater the risk of there being two recessive genes which equal a health condition in the dog. So that's why we start to see these health conditions coming. And it's great that we have the DNA test to be able to identify 
some of the health conditions that exist. But it's a bit like, um, imagine you've got a reservoir which is starting to leak and you're just running around trying to put your finger in every hole that you come across. It's, it's, at some point, it's not going to work. You've only got 10 fingers and you can only plug so many gaps and there's an infinite number of um, holes that can occur. And that's what's going to happen. And so the, the higher the COIs get, the greater the number of um, uh, recessive genes that are going to occur in both parents. And so the greater the risk of the puppies that are created being affected by whatever these conditions are. Some of these conditions we don't even have tests for. So um, and we, and we don't even we're not even aware of them yet because we haven't seen them yet because the COIs are not in some breeds high enough to see them. So um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's just getting me down a little bit. And I think it's mainly happening because there's still this idea of breeding the best to the best instead of thinking about ourselves as sort of custodians and guardians of a breed. But you know, if 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 people are not even hip scoring and elbow scoring and doing current eye tests before breeding and doing DNA tests for the conditions that exist. What hope in hell have we got of them actually making sure that they don't breed ever higher COIs? I just don't think we have a we have much of a hope of that at all. And so that was why I was really depressed as I was driving my car the other day. And I was wondering, are things ever going to change? That was one of the subjects I was thinking that about. Anyway, um, so there's there's um. An organization called the Institute of Canine Biology, which is run by a lady called Carol Beauchat, and she has a really great article online about um, COIs or coefficient of inbreeding. And if anyone wants to know more about them, then I will put a link to that article she wrote in the um, show notes for this episode, so you can look it up and have a read of that. But basically we start to see the negative effects of inbreeding from 5% upwards. And we definitely are seeing considerable effects in terms of health from 10%. So ideally, we want to keep our COIs at or below 5%. So I think that, I don't know what has to happen to get this across to people, but I suppose that the reason why I wanted to talk about it is because if it's not possible to reach these people who are breeding the dogs to reach all the breeders maybe it's possible to educate people who are buying a puppy and who are looking for a breeder and who are trying to choose the parents of the puppy so that that they start to think about looking for a low coi something to look for just as what just as you'd look for health test results in any other way hold the line so the training subject i'm going to start to talk about is that of blind retrieves now it's probably going to take more than one podcast episode to unpack blind retrieves what they are how to train them and so on so this is kind of an introduction but it's important because i think that there are different ideas about what a blind retrieve is and what it should look like in an ideal world and i think that unless we clarify what we're talking about we're going to be potentially talking at cross purposes so um, and it's also important just in terms of understanding the background of things, because then you will understand what you're trying to achieve and train. So so basically to say what, what a blind retrieve is, what is a blind retrieve? So at this very most basic level for people who have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, a blind retrieve refers to the situation where there is a retrieve out there, whether it's a dummy or a game, which the dog has not seen. So the dog doesn't know where it is, 
and they have no they haven't seen it come down they haven't seen it um run away they haven't seen it shot um in its most blind in the most blind blind retrieve (laughs) they haven't seen anything at all so um that's a blind retrieve now how we approach that scenario i think is where the interesting stuff comes in so I'll just kind of, I think the best way to sort of tackle the subject is to talk a bit about my own puzzlement when I first encountered it and my struggles to kind of make sense of it. So I was entering my Weimaraner slate in HPR working tests in the UK um, and I became aware that there were different approaches to running blind retrieves and I saw this when I watched other people run their dogs. So some people just sent their dog off And then they just sort of stood there and watched while their dog confidently and impressively ran over a whole area and quartered it and basically hunted it as if it were before the shot and found the retrieve in that way and brought it to hand. And the handler themselves kind of didn't really do very much during this process. They sort of stood there and watched their dog do the hunting. And then there were other people whose approach to it was to... um, um handle the dog so hope at least that the dog would take a straight line and stop to the whistle and cast left and right and back and that they would be able to put the dog onto where the retrieve was as it were so there are these kind of two different approaches and i began to think that all of this is not very well thought out it's not very um explicit what is desirable what is possible what we should be aiming for um and it all seems a bit of a mishmash so and by that i just mean that even the people who were happy for their dog to hunt up everywhere and run around everywhere would attempt to start things out by lining their dog up so they would bend down and they'd point their hand at the dog's side to try and indicate where the retrieve was and the dog because they hadn't been trained to take any notice of this just ignored the hand but in the idea of lining the dog up for something, there was some sort of nascent hope that the dog should um, take something from the handler through the action. Otherwise, they just stand there and give their cue without lining the dog up. So why line the dog up? Um, so basically, a lot of this just wasn't thought out very well. And I don't want to sound critical when I when I say that. I don't mean to be critical because it, I, you know... It's it's implicit rather than explicit. And I think to get behind it a bit, you kind of have to unpack what's behind the history of things. So behind the idea of the dog hunting up everywhere and running around and just using their own initiative and independence and confident hunting abilities and nose, um, that comes from continental Europe where dogs are um, assessed to you know, blind retrieves and they are expected to just hunt persistently to find the game and independently and to use their own initiative and all the rest of it so they're not hand, they're not taught to handle essentially and NAVDA in North America has copied this so they've looked to the countries of origin of these breeds and they've said right we're going to assess the breeds in the same way that they are assessed in their country of origin and then I think you get, I think someone correct me if I'm wrong, but you have like the NAVDA duck hunt idea where the dog hunts for some considerable period of time, usually, before they find this duck. Um, 
And the idea is that the dog is confident and happy to independently hunt without help from the handler for an extended amount of time. And that is how the blind retrieve is found. So you have you have that style of approaching a blind retrieve, and that's come from continental Europe. And then, meanwhile, in the UK, we have retrieverdom and retrievers and what's evolved with retrievers and the way the retrievers are handled and expected to take straight lines and stop to the whistle and take casts and at least be handled into the area where the retrieve is. So there's a strong influence in the UK from that angle and that perspective as well. And that's made an impact on what is considered to be esteemed and desirable and valuable. And that has filtered through into HBR work as well in the UK. So by HPR, by the way, HPR means hunt, point, retrieve. And I think probably in the US you might call those bird dogs or versatile dogs, um, breeds from continental Europe. Um, so hopefully that helps if anyone's you know, wondering what on earth I'm talking about. So um, yeah, so basically the thing to say is that there are these two different general approaches towards a blind retrieve and they've evolved from very different um, places and and for different um, breeds of dog, really. So I think it's important to keep in mind that HBRs in their countries of origin are not assessed as handling dogs. They're expected to to stop and cast left and right and, and back and all the rest of it. So um, and neither are they assessed that way in North America. Whether they're whether that's NAVDA, whether it's um, field trials, or whether that's hunt tests. Um, they, they're not assessed in that way. So the UK is really a bit unique in its, sometimes in its expectation. I would say not everyone expects HBRs to do this, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but um, the UK is unique in its position. And I think that there's some confusion coming through about what is expected at working tests and probably at trials as well. Um, I think we'll get onto that in a minute as well, but trials are a bit slightly simpler when it comes to this, um, well, why not get into it now? So basically, in a in a trial, the dog will have hunted and pointed, hopefully, usually, the game, and then flushed and watched the game fall. And so the dog will have some idea, even if the game does fly off and is pricked, lightly pricked, and manages to escape to a field nearby, the dog has seen it, and the dog's heard the shot, and the dog's usually got some sense of an idea of where it's come down. So... The idea of a truly, truly blind retrieve at great distances of, say, 200 yards or more, cold, just is not very common in field trials. Although, often in working tests, to challenge the more advanced dogs, you do get these scenarios that can be quite complicated, quite long distances, and are not things that you would commonly see in a trial. So they, there is a difference, then, between the type of retrieves which which are often set in tests and, the, and for HBRs and the type of retrieves that are set in trials. And this is probably a bit different to um, some of the other subgroups. I think for retrievers, there's, much more, um, there's a much more attempt to make the test and the trial environment and so, the sort of retrieves that you might get um, to emulate each other, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. 
Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I didn't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. So this is actually a really complicated subject, by the way. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make it um, understandable and to lay out what I what I came to work out. Um, so yeah, so basically we have really the idea um, of there being some folks who have no intention of training straight lines at all and want their dogs to hunt everywhere, just confidently, independently, with initiative, hunt and use their noses to find, and also their experience of the shot and what they might have seen to find the game. And then we've got some folks like uh, UK retrievers um, and some HPR handlers, many HPR handlers and spaniel handlers who want their dog to take lines and casting to some extent but they also want to be able to switch over to the dog taking control so um, an example of that would be that the handler would send the dog off in a straight line and the dog would take that line and the handler may cast the dog left or right or back if they need to and then once they once the handler is satisfied that they've got the dog pretty near where the dummy is or where they think it is then there's a cue which is the um, hunt cue which in the uk um, if it's a verbal cue, it might be something like lost, lost, or it might be a whistle cue. So I have a whistle cue which goes peep, 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 peep. It's got this falling pitch to it, and it's repeated, this cue, while the dog is, is hunting. So um, it's associated with the behavior which is hunting up the dummy. Um, and you know, just in the way that if you've got a little puppy and you take them outside to go to the toilet, while they're having a wee, you go wee, 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 wee. Um, or use some other word which perhaps isn't so stupid as wee wee which you might actually want to say in public Um, but yes whatever word you say gets associated with the action of weeing and so in the same way um, we won't get into the learning theory behind this um, but in the same way the word the the word well maybe the word or the whistle key that you give while the dog is hunting gets associated with the activity of hunting so and then in the future when you want to use it to ask the dog to start hunting you've got that association just like if you want to ask a dog to have a wee, you've built that association. So, yes. Anyway, so basically the idea there is you've got the straight lines and you've got the casting, but then you've also got the the option of passing things over to the dog and saying, right, dog, I've got I've done all I can. I've put you in the area. I've got no idea now where it is. It's over to you. You've got to hunt it up and use your nose and use your initiative and start close and then gradually widen your hunting circle until you find the retrieve. 
Um, and then we've got a third category of people. Um, we've got um, North American retriever trainers who don't want the dog to use any initiative and they want to put the dog right on the dummy or bumper, as they would call it, or retrieve um, or bird. So they want to have the dog absolutely nail it. They wouldn't be saying, okay, dog, I've put you in the general area. I want you to hunt it up. That would not be um, desirable. They want to put the dog right on the thing. Um, So we have these kind of three, you know, there's a range. Um, Dogs that hunt everywhere and do not take any straight lines. Dogs that take straight lines and then have the initiative passed over to them when they're put in the general area. And dogs that only take um, instruction from the handler and maintain straight lines and cast left, right or back until they're right on the thing. So there we go. That's how complicated the subject is. And what you need to be able to do is to decide what you want to train your dog to do. Because if you don't have a clear goal in your mind as to what your objective is, then you will end up confused and your dog will end up confused and your training will end up a mishmash. So, um, and this, by the way, it's going to be informed partly by the games, quote unquote, that you want to do with your dog. So, for example, I'm talking about the UK because that's just what I know. So, um, if you were in the UK and you your main objective was to do field trials and you would you know, you were going to do a few working tests, but you weren't really that serious about that. You were really aiming at trials. Then arguably, you would be much, much better off investing all your time and energy in developing your dog's hunting ability, pointing, range, style, and that on that side of things. And if you just had a dog which would hunt up an area on a blind retrieve, you, you would have, you would stand an excellent chance of being in the awards and of doing really well, because as I said earlier, most of the retrieves are not going to be 200-yard, very cold, blind retrieves. They're going to be retrieves which your dog's seen shot in front of them and has an idea where they are. So if your dog doesn't handle at all, then you could still do really, really well. So that's one example of where you might want to put your priorities. On the other hand, if you have a dog which you um, want to be a working test dog, or if you have a UK retriever or North American retriever, then you may want to very, very strongly want to train um, handling and straight lines and casting and all the rest of it. Um, And that might be very important to you. So it depends on what games you're going to play and it depends on where you live and you need to think about all of that. The other thing I'd say is it does depend a little bit on the dog as well. So my Weimaraner Slate was able to be trained to handle pretty well like a retriever so to be stopped on the whistle and cast left and right and back and we spent a lot of time training this and it's kind of where my love for retriever training drills and everything relating to that sprung from and when um, we got our next dog Grey the Slovakian roughhead pointer I approached her and training her as if she were Slate. So I thought, right, well, we'll just do everything we did with Slate and we'll do it even more, even better. So I tried to train her to do all these handling drills and to take casts and all the rest of it. And she just couldn't do it. Grey just seemed to be, it was like her brain was like a computer that was missing the chip called handling. It just seemed that no matter how much I broke it down and simplified it and how long we spent on it and how just organized and structured I was about training it, um, it, we just didn't make the progress that I wanted to make. So 
we would achieve something in one particular location and then as soon as we went to another location she couldn't generalize it at all so it was like she'd only learned how to do it in that particular place so it was really demoralizing and as an aside and going off on a slight tangent what I now think of that is that Grey as a dog had no awareness of her body so she didn't know what was behind her head she was very sort of unaware of herself physically and what where her feet were and what she was doing with herself and I think that this kind of I think your awareness of the space that you occupy and directions and you know taking a back cast in relation to a handler standing in front of you and and taking a left or right cast in relation to a handler standing in front of you and relating that to your body and the space that your body occupies in order to be able to do that you have to firstly have this um, awareness of your own body in space and how your own body moves in space and um, works essentially so I think it's about spatial awareness and I think spatial awareness begins with an awareness of the dog's own body so at the moment I am very interested in exploring sort of foundational agility training because these guys have all this stuff to do with hind leg awareness rear end awareness and the just the dog being able to move understand the dog can move each of their four paws individually and back up and um, interact with different objects using different parts of their body so I think that all of this is building great spatial awareness and that's the muscle that is that needs to be strong for the dog to be able to take casts directly relating to the handler this is just my little theory that I'm experimenting with at the moment so anyway that's a bit of a tangent um but let's come back to blind retrieves anyway yeah so what I was trying to say there is that you have to look at the dog because what I did is I spent a lot of time and effort and energy attempting to get gray to to cast to take casts and Really, if I had baby grey again, if I could click my fingers and have a grey back as a baby, I just wouldn't spend all that time doing that. I would just work on her hunting and her pointing and I would work on um, making all of that really great and hoping that we got simple retrieves in trials. And instead I was obsessed with perfecting handling before we got onto the hunting and and that side of things. And it just never came together in time before she was really you know, past it a bit, really. So um, I now regret that a lot. And so, I mean, the lesson there is look at the dog that you have in front of you and think about what that dog needs. And don't just try and train your new dog like you trained your previous dog because they're different dogs. So, yeah, that was a big lesson that I took from that. But anyway, that is relevant to blind retrieves as well because what you, how you choose to approach blind retrieves will be informed by that. I hope this is making some sense, by the way. Um, so yeah, whatever, whatever you attempt to do with your blind retrieves, whether you want to have the dog hunting up a whole area or you want to have the dog maintaining straight lines, there are some qualities that you need to be focusing on in your training. So one of them is confidence. So a dog needs confidence, whether they are quartering everywhere and hunting everywhere independently, they need to keep going and not give up. And they don't have much input from you or much support from you in that that approach. So they need to be able to work independently and that's prized. So that requires confidence. Also, if you separately or um, 
instead are training the dog to run straight lines, then that requires a lot of confidence. The dog has to be able to run and run and run in a straight line away from you and not do what we call popping, which is a term taken from North American Retriever training when the dog stops running out and you know, uncued, you haven't blown your whistle or anything, they just stop and turn and look at you because they're a bit unsure and they're looking for help and they're looking for you to cast them or to give them some sort of direction. Um, By the way, if you do that, you're reinforcing the popping. So if you then give them a cast, left or right or back or whatever, you're reinforcing the popping. So the only way to get rid of the popping is to build the dog's confidence up and not to let it get to the point where the dog pops through lack of confidence. So to always keep things easy enough that the dog feels successful and incrementally increase the difficulty so that the dog doesn't lack confidence and doesn't pop in the first place. Um, But anyway, confidence is needed to keep running like that. And then I've just put down run. And run, I think, just refers to just... It's partly speed and it's partly motivation and style and just, just keeping going, keeping going in this rhythmic way. Um, with intensity and that's something that you'd need whether your dog is running a straight line or whether they're quartering that sense of run rather than the dog you know pootling about and eating a bit of grass here and there and then kind of giving up and that side of things so run is is um, the other quality so confidence and run are two qualities that you're going to need however you try to train your blind retrieves yeah, so I hope that that kind of helps people understand blind retrieves a little bit. And I think, you know, I was really confused because when I did working tests, at the end of the day, when the judges give their feedback, you're always like hanging on what the judge says and you're trying to make sense of it as if it's going to help you make progress. And sometimes it seemed really confusing and conflictual what, what was said. So some judges would say things like... Um, you all need to trust your dogs more. Your dogs know where the retrieve is. Stop overhandling your dogs and let them get on with it. And um, that would be like one um, flavor of what would be said. And then on another day, or maybe even from a different judge on the same day, you might hear something like, you all need to teach your dogs to take casts better or to take straight lines or to work with you or to um, have reliable sit whistles or whatever. So it would be as if you should be controlling the dog more and you should be um, um, able to direct the dog better rather than giving the dog the initiative. And so I I found it really confusing and my head almost exploded. And I think it was only through the fact that I had a friend, Mike Ead. Hi, Mike, if you're listening. And we used to email each other and debate and discuss these things like you know what is desirable how do we achieve it and I think through that I got a lot of clarity about things and I was able to make a decision about what I wanted to do and also to think it through as well so I think a lot of the confusion arises because people haven't really thought through the fact I mean look in a basic sense in a basic way there is a thing out there hidden you have to get your dog to that thing What do you think is the most effective way of getting your dog to that thing? If you just can be quite sort of thoughtful about this and philosophical about this and analyze the skills that your dog needs to have, then you're going to have a really, really better chance of training reliable and good blind retrieves. Um, But we're going to get on to how to train them in future episodes. But I just kind of wanted to set the scene a little bit by talking about some of that. Um, So... 
yeah, and I hope that's helpful. And if you've got any questions, which you might do because it's quite a complicated subject, then just email me. So you can email me at Galody, that's G-A-L-O-D-Y at Mac, M-A-C dot com. And I would be happy to answer them. So that is all for this week, everyone. Um, I'm going to wish you all a very, very happy Christmas. I'm not sure if I, there will be an episode next week because I might be all Christmassy and busy doing Christmassy things. Um, but I will be back very soon. So have a great Christmas and see you soon. Holiday lights. Holiday lights. Holiday lights.